0: Before we begin in Acts three, um, I'd like to take just a moment before we before I begin to preach uh, to just have a little uh, to have a little talk with you uh, from from my heart to yours, I guess. Uh, and I want to have a just a a brief moment to discuss with you something that uh, Adam could never talk to you all about, and uh, something that he could never address with you. And uh, this will just be between us because he's not here, so he doesn't need to know about this. But uh, Something Adam can never talk with you about would be, uh, would be Adam. And uh, so I want to have just a brief word with you uh, about Adam. Um, caused, for, caused by a couple, couple different things. Uh, we had our members meeting uh, this, this last week, and that got me thinking. Um, had the unusual opportunity of Adam not being here today, and that got me thinking. And uh, then I had a, an interesting moment uh, this past week when somebody uh, not from our church uh, came and they heard about the situation with Adam's voice at all, and they uh, jokingly, uh, kind of tongue in cheek, said, "Well, I bet you're, I bet you're praying for about five more months of this thing to, uh, to keep going." And uh, and I know it was in jest, and you know I, I took it that way. Uh, and yet uh, my answer was decidedly uh, no. This is this is not what I'm praying for, and this is not what we hope continues um, for a couple reasons, and and they're really reasons that. Um, Caused me to be thankful to God, and I'm thankful to God for Adam, uh, because of the skills and gifting that, that God has given to Adam. And when he's not here, uh, we miss him. Uh, our body, God has God has put Grace Church together as as a body. And if you're if you're a member here, you, you have a role to to fill. Um, all of us fit together. Uh, you might be a foot or an arm or, or any other part of the body, but every member matters at Grace. Um, and God has put us all together. And yet God has put us all together, um, even when it comes to the leadership of our church. And so Adam is our pastor for preaching, and he's that way because of the way God has designed our church, because of the the order that God has for us. Um, And I'm just just thankful to God for the unique skills uh, and the gifting that he has given to Adam. Uh, As we discussed in our members meeting, uh, Adam gives the leadership amongst the leaders, uh, something that's unique to his personality, um, his abilities, his drive. Those are all things that give us as a church direction. And uh, he's also unique in the gifting God has given him when it comes to preaching. Um, obviously, every elder should be able to teach. That's a biblical requirement. And yet there's something unique in the preaching ability that Adam has. And, uh, and like you, I get to enjoy that week in and week out. It's just I don't get to enjoy it live. Uh, I have to get the uh, CD version. But uh, we can be thankful to God, really, for uh, the skills and the gifting that he's, he's given to Adam. And, and really, the glory and the credit does go to our God. And, and this is part of how he's made our church uh, in the leadership that he's, that he's gifted us with. And so I'm grateful for Adam in his, in his skills and his abilities and his gifting, really. And I'm also grateful for uh, the man that he is. Uh, because a lot of you, you may only get to see Adam um, on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis. Uh, And yet I can uh, guarantee guarantee you, as someone who sees him week to week, and uh, probably more than either of us wants to see each other, uh, something I'm so thankful to God about is that that Adam is the same person uh, Monday through Saturday that he is on Sunday. So we don't have a pastor for preaching who uh, puts on a show on on Sunday and then goes about the rest of the week doing what he will. Uh, He is just as passionate about knowing the Word and living the Word the rest of the week, as he is when he explains it to us all on a sunday morning and I'm, and i 'm grateful for that getting to see that i 'm getting to see him on a week to week basis um, he 's no sunday sham he 's the real deal and i 'm grateful for that that 's a blessing from our God um, getting to see him all the time also means that uh, I get to see the not so good parts too, uh, and yet even with that with that knowledge and all the time that we spend together i 'm so thankful to God um, for our pastor for preaching in Adam and I want you to know that. And uh, I have a couple thoughts for you uh, if you appreciate Adam as well. All right? I know it's a little unusual, but like I said, it's a, I think it's a unique opportunity for us to think about this. Uh, if, if you appreciate Adam as our pastor for preaching to, here are some things that you could do. Uh, one, you could pray for him. Uh, unless, unless you think that what happens on a Sunday basis uh, with his preaching and his teaching, unless you think that's happening through Adam's own power, um, there isn't anything better that you could do except pray for him. I mean, if we really believe that the power comes from the Holy Spirit and from the word of God and from the work of God, um, then we should be a praying people. We don't put our hope and our confidence on any man. Uh, We don't hang our hopes on Adam. Uh, We don't hang our hopes on any of the pastoral team. We hang our hope on the work of God and the power of his spirit. And so that means we're going to have to be a praying people. And so I just encourage you to make it a regular, normal part of your prayer life to be praying uh, for Adam. Second thing I think you do if you truly appreciate Adam as our pastor for preaching as well is that you could listen expositorily. And, uh, and this is what I mean. You know that uh, the style of, of preaching that we ha- we have here is is to preach uh, verse uh, by verse and work our way through passage and understand what does this passage say? Um, what does it mean and how can we, how can we live it? And if you bring that expectation to your listening, if if you come in on a Sunday basis and you sit down and you say, all right, here's my expectation. What, what I'm expecting today, if this is going to be a good sermon, all right, whatever fits in your mind as a good sermon, what's going to be a good sermon is if I walk away from here and I can say, I know what that passage means. I understand this passage. Because I understand it, now I'm going to live it. And so if you listen with, with that in mind, um, that could be one of the greatest blessings that you bring uh, to Adam or to any pastor of our church, that you would listen intentionally let me encourage you to do that. And the last thing I'd like to encourage you as we think about, uh, as we think about Adam, if you appreciate him as well, is really to express intentional praise. Um, like all of us, um, Adam doesn't need his pride to be fed. Um, and so if, if you're going to encourage Adam, if you would like to do that, um, let me encourage you to express praise in an intentional way. Um, you can do that by praising God um, when you talk to Adam. Um, you could say things like, God really used today's message in my heart to do this. Instead of necessarily saying, that was a good sermon, um, which is a, a kind thing to say, but but perhaps even a better thing is to praise God because of the sermon that you've heard. So so we give our thanks to God for what he's done. And so we say, I'm, I'm thankful to God for how he used the message. Um, we could point to Christ in the gospel of grace in our praise. And so you could approach Adam and say, I saw more of Christ's character today in this passage when you pointed out the following, and so the praise is going. It's pointing to Christ and to the great gospel that we have. Um, and another way to give intentional praise, a third way, would be to elevate the Holy Spirit in your praise. Uh, you could say things like, "Today, this Holy Spirit really struck me with this piece of information from this passage that I never really, I never really saw before," and the praise and the credit goes to the Holy Spirit for what He's done through the leadership and the preaching pastor that he's established for us, okay? So let me just encourage you uh, to think about um, ways that you can um, appreciate Adam and show your appreciation, and I think that's right and appropriate, uh, and at the same time um, where we we understand that God is the one who is at work and we pin our hope and our trust in God and the work that he's doing. So, for instance, uh, today it is not God's will that Adam preached to you. Uh, today it's God's will that that I preach to you. We can be thankful uh, no matter what God is doing. He's always doing the best thing for our good. Um, And yet I thought while I had a moment while Adam is out and about um, that expressed my thankfulness uh, for him. And um, I'm so grateful to be part of the team that is serving you and to be um, serving alongside of Adam. And I really think we should be praying for him. Um, We we do pray that uh, his voice return sooner rather than later. Some of you may uh, not be aware, but Adam's had a uh, a voice issue that's kept him uh, down, probably not down as much as he should have been since he preached last week, But uh, and he's still having trouble with his voice, so he has a couple of appointments coming up, and hopefully they'll be able to figure out what's going on, but uh, I pray for that daily, and I hope you will as well, okay? So there you go. That was my uh, sermon before the sermon, uh, but we're here this morning for Acts chapter number three, okay? Acts chapter number three, if you're already there. Because of the uncertainty of whether Adam will be back next week or not, I'm um, actually planning on preaching for the next two weeks, and hopefully it will only be this week. I'm praying for that, but um, planning otherwise. And so I'd like to, to begin a message to you today on the gospel according to Peter. Um, and today we're going to look at at the gospel, specifically when it comes to the crucifixion, and then Lord willing, Um, I won't be here next week. If we were, uh, we would talk about the gospel according to Peter when it came to the resurrection. But today, the gospel according to Peter, the crucifixion. Every society loves a good story. Uh, And this has been true of all human societies from the beginning of time. Uh, It's true in our society. Um, We're coming up on the time for uh, the summer blockbusters. Uh, Movies are a big deal. They're a big industry in our country. Um, stories and movies are something that people gravitate to and that they enjoy. Um, there are still some of us uh, in the United States, I, I know it because I see the New York Times bestseller list, there are still some of us who are just as happy with a book in hand, and uh, I'm one of those people. But uh, whether it's a story in a movie or a story in a book, we love a good story, don't we? That's not just true about our society, uh, it's also true of other cultures as well. Uh, you could go back earlier in American history, and you could find carvings on walls that tell a story. You could go across the world to other cultures, and, and you could read stories on the on the inside of Egyptian pyramids. It's, stories have been a part of, of every culture that has ever existed. Uh, there are some places where they don't write their stories down, but they actually pass their stories down from generation to generation verbally. And, and the f- generations know ancient, ancient stories because they've been told over campfires and, and in houses, for years, God has just made us to enjoy a good story. And yet, no story is more important than the one we consider this morning. And in fact, it's the story that we consider this time of year. As you can see even from our decorations uh, today, which I don't even know where they, who, uh, who brought these or where they came from, but I do appreciate them. Uh, today is what's typically referred to as Palm Sunday, uh, the, the story of the Passion Week of our Christ. And yet, unfortunately, we have a problem with stories. And the problem is that sometimes stories can kind of go stale. Uh, for instance, I'm the kind of person that I can only watch a movie one time. I'm not a, I'm not a two-time movie watcher. I've seen it once, and I'm, I'm pretty much done with it. Uh, and you might be that way with other stories as well. Maybe you're that kind of person that you could read the same book, watch the same movie over and over and over again. But for some of us, stories end up starting to get a little bit stale. And, and that's definitely a danger for us as we come to the most important story ever told is that we can go, yeah, sure, I, I know the story. I know the story of Palm Sunday. I, I know the story of the Passion Week. I, I know the story of the crucifixion. That's that's old news. It's, that's not a new story. It's been around for a long time. And yet, today, we're going to allow Peter to preach to us about the best and most important story ever. Because the crucifixion of Christ is the most crucial story of all time for all cultures. The crucifixion of Christ is the most crucial story of all time for all cultures. And we're going to let Peter preach to us. I know many of you enjoyed the, the sermon we heard several weeks ago on, on the 12 disciples. We got to meet them. And now we're actually going to sit at the feet of Peter and let him preach to us from Acts chapter 3. You know the beginning of the story uh, that Dave read. The beginning of the story is Peter and John are on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. And there's a lame man there. He's lame from birth. And uh, and he's looking for alms. He's looking for money. And along come Peter and John. And they say, look here. And he looks at them, and he thinks he's about to get some money. And uh, they do something for him way better than money. They say, we don't have any silver. We don't have any gold. But we do have is the power of Jesus Christ. And they heal the man who was born lame. Later on in Acts, we find out this guy had been lame for he was 40 years old. So for 40 years, he had been unable to walk. And in a moment, Peter heals him instantly. We don't see any process of physical rehab. He's not going through any therapy. Uh, he just instantly leaps up and he starts to walk and to jump. And, uh, and everybody knew this guy. I mean, he was 40 years old. He'd been begging in front of the temple this whole time. And, uh, and so this huge crowd began to gather to see what in the world is going on here. And Peter takes this opportunity to preach his second sermon. While all these people are gathering together, astonished, Peter says, All right, let me tell you what's going on. And what Peter does is he preaches a sermon. From the porch of Solomon, and this sermon that we're going to look at this morning, uh, Peter isn't going to use an outline like the kind that we would normally use. All right, he doesn't have three points and then a poem at the end. Uh, but what he does do is clearly present a sermon in two parts. All right, and we're going to look at these two parts together. The first part is based on contrast, and the second is based on proofs. And so the first part of Peter's sermon and the the point for us today. In, his, in the first component of his sermon is to know the historical reality of the crucifixion. All right? The first thing Peter wants you to get is the historical reality of the crucifixion. So let's go to Acts chapter 3. We're going to start down in verse number 12. Uh, Peter sees the crowd gathering, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, and this is what he said. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? All right. Peter's introduction is, hey, don't don't look at us. Don't quit acting like I'm the one whose great power, whose great piety made this happen. Peter says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at Christ. Verse 13 says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus and Jesus is going to be at the grand theme of this message from Peter. Peter is going to take this opportunity to point to Christ over and over and over again. The amazing thing about this is Peter could have gone any number of directions with this opportunity. He could have said, do you know what? Here's a guy that was born, uh, born lame and now he's healed. Let's have a testimony service and uh, we're going to let him talk about um, how terrible life was when he was lame and how he couldn't walk around and how he couldn't make any money. And now he's been healed and isn't this great? Uh, Peter could have said, uh, this indeed was a great miracle, and for four low monthly payments of $29.99, you can get your your miracle too. I mean, he could have done a lot of different things uh, with this miracle. What he did was point to Christ. He pointed to Christ. He said, there are some things I want you to know, and what he wanted them to know was Christ's deity Versus man's denial. Remember, I said this first part of this message, the historical realities are based on contrast. And so, Peter's going to set up the contrast between the deed of Christ and the worth of Christ and the rejection that he received. We see even in the titles, he says, Peter says, I want you to know that it's the God of Abraham, it's the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He uses that title that was used from the burning bush. He uses the same title that Jesus himself talked to the to the pharisees when he talked about the resurrection from the dead um, he uses a title stephen would use the same title as well later on in acts he's pointing to the one true god right the historical god the, the one who is it's that god who glorified his servant jesus he glorified his servant jesus you might say when did god glorify his servant jesus i think he's most clearly pointing to the resurrection and then the ascension of jesus christ And one of the ways that we know that is that Peter uses the term his servant, Jesus. And that's actually not a common term in the New Testament. Um, Peter is one of the few who actually directly calls Jesus the servant. And yet, Peter has very definitely been influenced by one of the prophets. There is one person who wrote about the suffering servant more than any other. Do you know which prophet was most influencing Peter's thinking? It was Isaiah. Isaiah was the one who wrote about the suffering servant. And Isaiah 52, 13, right before that that great chapter that you probably know so well, we read these words. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And that was to follow the great suffering and the great rejection of Jesus. And so when we read that his servant Jesus was glorified, I think he's referring to to the resurrection and then the ascension. Because Peter's drawing a contrast. All right, this is how God felt about his servant Jesus he glorified him, all right? He brought him back from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He made him glorious, all right? That was that was Christ's deity on display. And yet in great contrast to God's opinion of Jesus, let's see what man's opinion was. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Peter starts talking about the historical realities of the crucifixion, and he says, here's what happened. Jesus was deity, and then you, that word is emphasized in our text, in the original, you could just like underline that you. Peter wasn't messing around. Peter put the full, full weight on his ears. He said, you guys, you all, the people that are looking at me right now, you, what did they do? You delivered over, and you denied this glorified one, This great one, the servant, you denied him in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release him. You see, Christ was deity, and yet man chose to deny him. That's the reality of the crucifixion. In fact, we can flip over to the book of Mark, and let's do that. I just want you to flip to one chapter in Mark, and we're going to flip back here a couple times. Mark chapter number 15, that contains the narrative about the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark was... Under the influence of Peter, when he when he wrote his letter, you know that he was a, a follower of Peter. Mark was not one of the disciples, you know, uh, he wrote his gospel under the influence of Peter. And we read this in Mark 15, verse number one. As soon, was mo- as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and did what to him? Delivered him over to Pilate all right exact same word, this is what Peter says, you guys did this. you delivered him over to Pilate, and Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? and Jesus answered, "You have said so, and the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. We have the record, we have the story. Of the crucifixion of Jesus. And the story is. That even though he was divine. Man chose to deny him. And these very Jewish people. Chose to deliver him over to Pilate. Back in Acts chapter 3. Peter continues to. Just stick it to the people. That he's preaching to. Uh, This is very in your face. You delivered him over. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. Verse number 14. But you. He's using that same emphatic I'm talking to you guys right in front of me. You denied the Holy and Righteous One. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And we find that recorded as well for us in Mark chapter 15. Starting in verse number six, we read, Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. You see, this is the historical reality of the crucifixion. Here was Jesus, who even Pilate said, this guy didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, Peter says he is the holy and righteous one, a term that is reserved for God. This holy and righteous one, the one who had done no wrong, you denied him. In fact, you preferred a murderer over him. In the Jewish mind, they said, we would rather condemn an innocent man and release the guilty. You see the great contrast that's here between the sinner and the righteous? Here's another one of those contrasts that's all throughout the beginning of the sermon. You have the holy and righteous one, and you have a murderer. And what happened in the crucifixion is the people said, okay, we'll, we'll take the murderer. Go ahead and let him off, but kill this righteous one. Let's get rid of him. They didn't want Jesus, but they considered it a favor to have a murderer released. This is an amazing contrast with the deity of Jesus and the denial of man. And this is what actually happened to our Lord. A, a vicious, murdering criminal was chosen over him to be released, even though Christ was the holy and righteous one. The contrast continue in verse number 15. Again, Peter is saying, you and you killed the author of life. Kind of a funny, a funny irony to read killed and author of life together. Peter says, you decided to kill the one who actually started all life. He was the author. He was the beginner of all life. So Jesus, who was the creator, who, who made all things that exist, you decided to go ahead and kill him. Another amazing contrast. Jesus began all life, and at the crucifixion, we decided to kill that one. This is the historical reality of the crucifixion. Jesus was divine, and yet he was chosen to die. Crucifixion was chosen for him. There is an amazing and sad reality at the crucifixion. We don't want you, holy and righteous one. We don't want you, author of life. We'll take a murderer, we'll take a killer, but you, you can be crucified. There's a second great contrast in this passage, and that great contrast is between man's ignorance and God's intentions. Look down. Uh, look down in verse number 17, as Peter continues the sermon. He says, "Now, brothers," he calls them brothers. That's an amazing thing. After pointing them and saying, "You killed Jesus. You're the one. You denied the righteous one. You denied the holy one," he says, "Now, brothers, fellow countrymen." I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Peter says, I know that you did not understand that Jesus was the Messiah. You were ignorant in what you did. In fact, we even know from the cross, one of Jesus' sayings from the cross was, Father, forgive them. Why? They know not what they do. They are ignorant. They cast lots to divide his garments, but they didn't understand what they were doing. The Jews did not understand that the one they were killing was their Messiah. An interesting contrast, though, is that the Jews didn't know what they were doing, but God did. Look, as we continue on in verse number 17. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but the contrast, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You see, the great realities, the, the things that we even think about during this Easter season and during this coming Passion Week, those were all part of God's master plan. He was fulfilling the promise from the prophets. He was fulfilling what he said he would do. So while man was being ignorant in what they were doing, God was working out his plan. It's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. This is the historical reality of the crucifixion, that all of the events from the betrayal of Jesus that night from Judas uh, to the to the To the way his disciples ran from him and betrayed him to the way he died on that cross and yet never had a bone broken, the way they, the way they took his clothes from him and gambled over them all these things were foretold in scripture the jews didn 't know what they were doing, but God knew exactly what he was doing. This is the great historical reality of the cross, and I think you know the story you you know the details of what happened at the crucifixion. And yet, we cannot leave this crucifixion story on a on a factual plane. This this cannot be just about facts. I, I know some facts about the crucifixion. If allowing the story to get stale to us is a danger, so too is just leaving it as a story. Uh, it's a nice thing to remember. Uh, there are lots of stories we like, and, and this is a nice story. If that's all it is, we miss the point because Peter is going to turn the corner in verse number 19, and he's going to move from the historical reality to embracing the theological ramifications of the crucifixion. Yes, it's true. All of the events that we even remember, particularly this time of year, those are true, and they're part of God's plan. And yet there's a purpose to all of these. There, there are some, there's a theological significance to what happened at the crucifixion, and that significance is, first of all, a saving purpose. There is a saving purpose in the crucifixion. Verse number 19 says... Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. You see, the Jewish people's ignorance did not excuse them. They didn't get off the hook because they didn't understand. The fact that God's sovereignty was at work and this was God's plan working out, it didn't excuse them for what they had done. There was only one recourse left for them because the crucifixion is true. Because, because they denied and killed the Lord Jesus, there was only one response that should have followed. And that's what Peter says. He starts out verse number 19 with it. You should repent. He doesn't excuse them. He doesn't say it's allowable. He says you need to turn away. You need to, you need to go a whole different direction. Instead of being somebody who says, yes, we'd rather have Jesus killed and have a murder. You need to turn a whole other direction and say, I will receive him as my Messiah and my Savior. He says, repent and turn. He, those two words uh, mean virtually the same thing. They're two different words, but they have the same idea. Repent and be converted. You need to, you need to turn directions. Uh, when I'm explaining this to the kids, uh, I usually get a coin. All right? and, uh, and I have a coin, and uh, on heads, uh, I have a kid stand over here holding up a sign that says sin. All right? And I have another kid stand over here, and uh, he's got the tail side and over here it says God. So we have God over here and sin over here. And, uh, and I get a volunteer, and I have him face the sin sign because I tell him we're all born in sin. We're all heading towards sin. No one's born walking towards God. We're walking away from God. And I give him the coin, and I say, all right, flip the coin. And uh, he flips it over to heads. And heads means I'm going to turn away from sin. So he turns 180 degrees, and he's going away from sin, which means he's going towards He's going towards God. If he flips in and he gets tails, he says, Okay, I need to turn to God. That means he has to turn away from sin. All right, either way, either way you slice it, repentance means turning away from sin and to God. That's the gospel message that, that you have to turn your back on your sinful ways, on your sinful ideals, and you have to turn to God. And there's a great blessing that comes with that repentance and with that saving purpose. In fact, there are three great things that Peter talks about. In this passage, first of all, he says, repent and turn again. First of all, that your sins may be blotted out. That's the first great blessing that comes from this crucifixion. If you repent because of the crucifixion, your sins will be blotted out. We've talked about this before here, um, but when we're talking about blotting out, we're we're talking about completely removing any bit of writing. Um, They would have written oftentimes just on the surface. It could have been easily wiped away or else they would have, Written on skins that 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 writing could have been erased. It's gone. Your sins can be blotted out today. (coughs) It comes because of the crucifixion. That is a reality of the crucifixion. Your sins can be blotted out. They can be gone if you will just repent. Peter says there's more. It's not just that your sins may be blotted out and all the great blessing that is for us, but also that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Uh, That phrase has caused a lot of different argument. What exactly are these times of refreshment? Peter doesn't go on to elaborate, um, and yet I I think the best way of understanding the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord is that God doesn't just save us and then leave us. He doesn't say, all right, your sins are forgiven, and uh, all, all is well. He actually continues to bring us spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing. Paul said that all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus, and there is an ongoing refreshing that comes from our God and yet Peter doesn't just look at the present he doesn't just say in the past your sins were wiped away in the present you have blessing he looks to the future do you know that the crucifixion has future ramifications for us look at what Peter says that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago Peter says look Christ isn't Christ isn't here anymore. He's, he's returned to heaven. But if you will repent, if you will become a Christian, if you will become a believer, then one day in the future, God will send back the Messiah appointed for you, Jesus. We're talking about the great promise of the second coming. That's what is going on in this verse. Peter would pick up this theme later in 2 Peter, and he would he would remind uh, his readers in 2 Peter that a day with the Lord... Uh, Is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some people count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens are going to pass away. The heavenly bodies will be burned. Since all of these things are true, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And then listening to this verse, all right? This is exactly what Peter is saying in Acts 3. Waiting for and hastening The coming of the day of God, right? There is is a way that people can wait for and actually hasten, hurry up the second coming. And that is by receiving this gospel message. You see, Christ will never return until every one of his are saved. Until the last chosen one is actually a believer, our Christ will not return. And yet, when the fullness of that time is, when everyone who is to be a Christian becomes one, Our Christ will return. It's a great promise. There is a future hope for us because of the crucifixion. Our Christ is going to come back and he's going to save everyone who he intends to save. So there is a great saving purpose in the crucifixion. And there is a great scriptural promise as well. The crucifixion was God's purpose, but he was also fulfilling his promises. And that's the end of Peter's sermon. When he starts talking about Moses in verse 22, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's a quote that everybody in his day understood was referring to the Messiah. And so Peter applies this to Jesus. He's talking about the Moses-like prophet was Jesus. You see, there was a promise from as long ago as Moses that one would come who would be the deliverer, who everybody had to listen to. And if you didn't listen to, you would be destroyed. Peter adds more argument, not just Moses, he says, but verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these things. All right. Uh, In the Jewish mind, the, the Old Testament was split up into three different categories. You have the law and the prophets and the writings. And they viewed Moses, I mean, Moses wrote the law, the first five books. And then Samuel they viewed as the first of the early prophets. And so Moses to Samuel were connected. And and they said these prophets, Moses and Samuel both, were were promising something that would come. They were promising Christ. And so Samuel talked about him as well. But it's not just Moses and it's not just Samuel that Peter talks about uh, the promises of God. He actually goes all the way back to the Abrahamic Covenant. Look at verse 25. You, he's been telling these people they are hearing this first, his second sermon, you killed him, you denied him. And now look what he says in verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets, and you're the sons of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In your offspring, in your seed, All the families of the earth would be blessed. And that word is singular because it's pointing to Jesus. And so even in the Abrahamic covenant, we have the promise of Jesus who was to come. You see, Moses pointed to Jesus. Samuel and all the rest of the prophets pointed to Jesus. The Abrahamic covenant, it pointed to Jesus. It pointed to the crucifixion. And verse 26, Peter concludes, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. And here's the blessing. Here's the blessing of one of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You want to know what the blessing was? You could be blessed by turning every one of you from your wickedness. These are the great promises that come from as early as Moses that point to the crucifixion. What what we celebrate when we think about the death of our Lord as, as we consider his passion week this week, these are promises that God has made from From the beginning of his word, that he would send a redeemer, that he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would provide a rescuer, a redeemer for his people, that there would be one that Moses says you should listen to him. And it is remarkable to see Peter pull together from Isaiah, calling Jesus the suffering servant from Moses, saying he is the great prophet. From Samuel saying, this Jesus would be the great king. From Abraham saying, Jesus is the great fulfillment of the covenant. It all points to him. This is the great ramification of the crucifixion, that that our Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. He is the promise of our salvation. Peter masterfully presents Jesus as the one true Messiah. And this is a theme that Peter never got out of his head. I want to take you on a quick journey through a few, of other, a few other passages that Peter wrote to us. Let's flip over to 1 Peter. I'm just going to look at a, a few more passages and see that Peter continues this theme of the great suffering Jesus who would be our Savior. He preaches it here only days after Pentecost, and it would become the message of his life. So when we flip over to his letter in 1 Peter, we read in verse number 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed, you were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He says, OK, Jewish people, all the ways of your forefathers, they were futile. They, they didn't add up to salvation. You were ransomed from those feudal ways, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, this is the great story. The great story that is the crucial story for our culture and any other culture, that Jesus is the lamb without blemish or spot who can redeem you through his blood. Peter would go on in 1 Peter 2. Let's look at verse number 21. First Peter 2.21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And listen to this description. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges right justly. And then listen to this verse. This is amazing. He himself. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed by his wounds you have been healed where have you heard that verse before you heard it in isaiah because peter was so profoundly convinced that the crucifixion meant that jesus was the redeemer the one who could heal us from our sins The one who would take our place. The one who bore our sins so that we could die to sin. One more verse in 1 Peter 3, verse number 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. He's back to the theme of the suffering servant. I mean, Peter just will not let this go. Jesus is the suffering servant. Verse number 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Have we we seen that contrast anywhere else today? I mean, this is Acts 3 again. There is a righteous one and there are unrighteous ones. This Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. That's the end of repentance, right? We turn from sin to God so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, there is a reality to the story that we have to tell as believing people. There is a reality that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and then he was rejected by his own people. He was denied. He was given over to a Roman governor named Pilate who said, I can't find any fault in him. And yet the Jewish people rose up and said, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, fine, I'll wash my hands. You do what you deem best. And they took Jesus outside of Jerusalem and they nailed him to a cross. He died there. He literally died physically died that is a reality of the greatest story ever told but the crucifixion of christ is the most crucial story of all time for all cultures because that is not by any means the end in fact we look forward next week to reveling in the great resurrection of our christ because there are realities about the crucifixion it's not just a story it isn't just it happened Jesus was accomplishing something as he died on that cross. He was saving his people from their sins, just as he had been promised to do. He was blotting out their sins, erasing them, making it possible for all of our sins to be gone. Not with some substitute like gold or silver, but with precious blood. He was making it possible for us to enjoy times of refreshing in the present he was making it possible for the future for him to come back and gather his beloved ones who are saved in his great second coming. He was accomplishing all of these things as he was fulfilling all of the promises of God. That God had promised from the beginning of time, from Genesis on, he was filling those great purposes. That's the theological reality of what's happening when we celebrate the crucifixion, when we remember it. So so what so what for us this morning what's what's the point of of this story you need to we need to understand today and let me encourage you to understand but the gospel is under attack today if we read on in acts from acts 3 we'd get to acts 4 and you'd find out that as soon as peter finished this sermon you know what happened he was immediately arrested opposition arose instantly and instantly the gospel was attacked. And instantly the religious, religious leader said, okay, you can do whatever you want, but whatever you do, quit preaching. Just stop, all right? We'll let you do whatever you want as long as you stop preaching. And, and the Peter and the others said, look, we have to obey God. Um, we are witnesses to this reality. And that was a reality from the beginning of this sermon, that the gospel would be under attack. And yet that's a reality in our day as well. Now, you know that the world is the world is no friend of grace, right? I mean, you know, the gospel has always been under attack from the world. Um, In our day, we have seen a rise in what is called the new atheism as a whole new generation of atheists have have brought another array of arguments to the table to say, okay, this is still just as much hogwash as it always was. There are still those people who flat out deny the Christian gospel. There are still those competing religions Uh, that continue to say this message isn't true and the story is insignificant. There is still the rise of Islam in our day, one of the fastest growing religions uh, that exist on our planet. There are attacks from the gospel from without. And yet, tragically, there are attacks on the gospel from within. In fact, just this week, um, from within the professing Christian people, I read multiple really discouraging Accounts and reports of the gospel being under attack under the banner of of Christian religion, right we should expect it when it comes from from the world, but when it happens from Christian religion, it is all the more sickening and saddening. you need to understand the gospel is under attack because of immorality. immorality is an attack on the gospel, so anytime you have a Christian church or a Christian group who claims the gospel and then they publicly profess following any kind of sin, that is an attack on the heart of the gospel. I read an account this week um, about the Episcopal Divinity School. Um, Episcopalians would still claim the name of Christian. Uh, they, just, they just appointed their new dean. Uh, her name is Catherine Ragsdale. And uh, in one of her sermons that is freely available and that she canu- continues to report, uh, she made this great claim, abortion is a blessing and our work is not done. She preached an entire sermon, and the point of it was there's great tragedy. Uh, there's tragedy when a woman becomes pregnant because of a rape. Uh, there's tragedy when a woman is, is in poverty and she's pregnant, and she can't take care of her baby, and that's such a sad thing. Uh, you know, there is, there is tragedy in the world when we expect uh, women who are in a nice relationship that they, they have to have their babies. That's, that's such a sad thing. But the good news is there's a blessing. And the blessing she purports is abortion. All right, that is, that is immorality under the guise of the Christian religion. And that you have to understand that as an attack on the gospel of the good news. That's an attack on all that we know and, and hold dear when we talk about the crucifixion. That's the kind of thing that Jesus died to rescue us from. So it's an attack on the crucifixion of Christ. And immorality is rampant in the Christian church today. Easy believism is an attack on the gospel. I read something else this week. It was a bad week for me reading stuff. Uh, easy believism is an attack on the gospel. I read an account about a church that's uh, very popular and very well-known, and what they want to do is uh, they wanted to have a Saturday where they had more people become part of their church than happened at Pentecost. All right? So their goal was get more than 3,000 people baptized and members of the church in one day. All right? And they had on the Internet three requirements. Three requirements for for you to become uh, baptized and be part of the church. You know what they were? Number one, open your heart to Jesus. Number two, take this class. And number three, become a member. All right? Now, that church may have explained a lot more fully that first point, number one. But if there isn't any more clarity to becoming a Christian than open your heart to Jesus, then we have an attack on the gospel. See, anytime you have a costless Christianity, anytime you, you can get this salvation in order to just better yourself and, and have yourself a better life now, and, and all of that easy believism stuff that is rampant, every time we deny the lordship of Christ and salvation, we have an attack on gospel truth. And it makes this great story, the story of the crucifixion that, that we think about now in a special way, it makes it so pointless and worthless, It's an attack on the gospel itself. And this is under the banner of of Christian religion. Ecumenicism is an attack on the gospel. Because, you see, our problems when it comes to the gospel are not just out in the world somewhere. They're right here in our own community. And so I picked up my paper this week, and I read that you can go to the, on Friday, you can go to the pageant service um, presented by the Holy Family Catholic Church. And good news is there will be plenty of time for everybody to get from that to the ecumenical community-wide Good Friday service. That's exactly what the paper said, okay? Now, Now, listen, folks, you need to understand, as people who think that the crucifixion is the greatest story of all time for all peoples, that all of that is an attack on the gospel. You need to understand that when we open our arms to any religion and to every religion, we have to sacrifice something. And you know what that something is? That something is the gospel. That's always what goes under the name of some kind of superficial unity. And and let's, let's all get along. Do you know what we start ignoring? We start ignoring doctrine and we start stop actually thinking about what the crucifixion means. What the crucifixion means is that there isn't any salvation any other way except in Christ. He is the only way to have your sins forgiven. And so on on the very week, the very week that we have traditionally set aside to remember the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, I ran into multiple flagrant attacks on the gospel. That's what they are. You see, it has never been more important for you to love and believe and cling to this old, old story with all of its ramifications. It has never been more vital for us to know what happened at the crucifixion and to know why it happened and how it's connected to our lives. So let me encourage you today. What is the point of all this? You need to, you need to know the historical facts of the crucifixion. You need to know what they are. Can I encourage you, even, even this week, even as we head towards Easter Sunday, read the accounts again. Uh, go back to the Gospels. It's, it's in all the Gospels. Read read the story again for yourself. Read Mark's full account. Read Matthew. Read John, who spends more time on the Passion Week than anybody else. Let, let the story be fresh in your minds and know that this is historical reality. You have a very real Christ who, who came here in a body, And he willingly gave that body to be sacrificed on a cross for your sins. Know that account. We should be a people that whenever whenever we're asked, what what are the facts of the gospel? Can you give me the details? That we can instantly go, I know these details and I love these details. We need to know the facts of the gospel. But secondly, we need to embrace the theological ramifications as well. The gospel is not the the basics of Christianity, all right? It, it isn't like something that we learn and then we leave behind. Uh, it's not the ABCs in the sense that, well, I learned my ABCs and then I never go back to them, all right? The gospel is the beginning and it is the middle and it is the end of everything it means to be a Christian, all right? So it isn't like, yeah, okay, the gospel is for my salvation and then I get to, I get to move on, all right? The gospel is everything to us. This crucifixion story, it is what our whole present and our whole future hangs on. It's what your hope of sins past forgiven, it hangs on this account of the crucifixion and what it really means. So embrace the theological realities of this great crucifixion and of this great gospel. That's going to mean personal belief from you. Not enough for us to just say I know these facts, I know these things that are true. I I think these things are true. The gospel demands of us, just like Peter demanded from his readers, it demands a personal response. He told his readers, you must repent. And the same thing is true for us. There must be a personal response of belief and of repentance at this great, great story of crucifixion. And I would hate to assume that every one of us in this room this morning have Have personally placed your complete trust and confidence in this message. Because it is so easy for us to misunderstand the gospel message. For it to have been a a cultural understanding. For us to have failed to, to realize that Jesus died as a substitute for us. For us to assume that we're making it to heaven on the goodness of our parents. Or the goodness of our town. Or the goodness of our church. There is only one way for your sins to be blotted out. And that is for you to personally place your confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. To embrace the details of the crucifixion and say, that's true. And it's true for me and the only way for my sins to be forgiven. Not just that happened, but this happened and it's the only thing I bank my eternity on. Personal belief. There also has to be practical living if we are going to embrace this greatest story ever told. We have to live differently, beloved. We have to live differently if we embrace this gospel message. If you embrace the crucifixion, then Jesus is going to have to be your example. He is going to have to be your Lord. He's going to have to be the one who dictates how you think and how you live. He's going to, be have, he's going to have to be the one that you submit to. The gospel of grace is going to teach you to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. To live righteously and godly in this present age. It will be the gospel that does it. Because you embrace the crucifixion of Christ. There will be personal belief that should come. There will be practical living that should come. If you embrace these theological realities. And there should also be a powerful testimony. We of all people should be most ready and eager to share this great story. It is sometimes easy for us to be defensive about the gospel and the gospel under attack. But perhaps a a better question is, how eager are we to share this great gospel message? Yeah, it's it's one thing to get riled up when when you see American churches going the way American churches are, uh, to be be saddened over the immorality under the guise of, of Christian names. And yet, how are we doing personally at sharing this great story? How many, of your, how many of your neighbors know that you believe that all of, the, all of the historical details about Christ are true and that that's where you bank your hope of salvation? And in fact, that's what you want them to believe as well. How many of your coworkers understand that that you're not trusting in your church attendance, even though you go to church, that you're not trusting in being a good person, although you're trying to obey your Christ, that your hope isn't in those things? When it comes to salvation, your hope is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. How are we doing at sharing the the greatest story, the most crucial story of all time for all cultures? Because if we're really convinced that this is true, if we're really convinced that the crucifixion is necessary, that that it happened in history and that it has significant impact on our lives, then we will be the best evangelist and ought to be the best evangelist. Like Peter, we ought to testify to this reality. All right, this message, this story should change our lives. And that's why I say it's the most crucial story of all time for all cultures. There are lots of stories that we enjoy, and and they're a nice story, and they're fun. But there is no story like the true story of the crucifixion that radically alters everything about us. It changes our perspective of life. It changes our perspective of eternity and it changes how we live is the gospel is is this great story that Peter preached to us today about the crucifixion of Christ is it changing you let's all pray father we are we are so amazed at the great gospel of grace we We marvel at the truth of the crucifixion of our Lord. We marvel that we would rather receive a murderer than release the innocent and pure one. We marvel that that's where our hearts, left in their sinful state, that's where our hearts agree as well. We marvel that we are so quick to rebel against you. We marvel that Jesus Christ would die For our sins. I marvel. That he would choose to suffer. As he did. In order that we could be free. From your just judgment. And so as as a people today. As a people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. That great and powerful name. We give you praise and thanks. For the crucifixion of our Christ. We embrace the reality that the crucifixion brings. We embrace the reality that there is not salvation in any other name except this name of Jesus, the crucified one. We embrace the reality that we can never get rid of our own sin, but we needed this crucifixion. And Father, we long to be better, more capable witnesses to this great story. We long for our neighbor's and our co-workers, and our community to see the greatness of Jesus Christ and to embrace him as their Savior. And so we ask you today that you would give us, as, as a church, that you would give us a clarity of understanding of the crucifixion. I pray that you would, you would ignite our affections for Jesus Christ, I pray that you would stir in us a love and a devotion to our Lord because of his amazing sacrifice for us. I pray that you would give us a devotion to the gospel that drives us as a people, that drives us in how we live day in and day out, that drives how we look at the future, that drives how we look at the world around us, that because we love the gospel and because we love the crucifixion, we are a different kind of people. Father, I I pray that if there's someone here this morning and they haven't personally trusted in Jesus as the crucified one for their salvation, I pray that your word would do its powerful work in their heart. We long for people in our corner of the world and all across the world to become worshipers of Jesus Christ because he is worthy. You are worthy of our praise and even as we head into this week where we have traditionally remembered triumphal entry and then the Passion Week of Jesus and then his death, I pray that you would give us a renewed love for this great crucifixion story. Give us a renewed appreciation for our Christ. Help us to not pass through more days ignoring and minimizing the importance of the crucifixion. May the gospel be our rallying cry. May it be our theme even this week. May it just invade our thinking at every turn that we would remember our Christ, though holy and righteous, denied and rejected, and yet doing it that our sins could be blotted out, that times of refreshing could be ours, and that he could return from heaven to collect his spotless bride. We pray in that wonderful name of Jesus, the one who is our savior, the one who was the suffering servant, the one who poured out love that we could never deserve. The one who saves his people from their sins. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.